Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, today, Shalom, in preparation for Pesach coming up, beginning uh, next Friday night, so be sure to be cleaning all the leaven from your homes. Uh, the day of Passover, of course, the day on which Yeshua died is our Pesach lamb. In preparation for this, I want to look today at the crucifixion. So turn with me if you can to Matthew, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45. Matthew 27, uh, 45, on the overhead as well. And we read this. From noon till 3 p.m., darkness descended over the face of the land. About 3 p.m., Yeshua cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's called Eliyahu, Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, got a sponge, filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Yeshua to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will really come to save him. And when Yeshua cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. The tombs were open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Yeshua's resurrection, went into the holy city, and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him regarding Yeshua saw the earthquake, and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance, but they, they, they followed Yeshua from Galilee you know, to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary and the mother of Jacob and Yosef, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. But in this famous passage, filling the Pesach imagery of Yeshua as the Lamb of God, uh, Matthew not only here tells us how Yeshua died, but also gives us hints and biblical references as to why he died. Many people today in our modern uh, or postmodern relativistic world, they say the cross. Maybe maybe that means something to you. Uh, you interpret it your way. I'll interpret it my way. But the gospel writers don't leave you that option. The Gospel writers are very careful to let Yeshua interpret his own death. For him, to te- for him to tell us what it means. And we see that when the darkness comes down from the 6th to the ninth hour, from, from noon to 3 p.m., for three hours, by the way, paralleling the, the plague of darkness in Egypt for three days, uh, leading up to the Passover and the Exodus, uh, and Yeshua on the cross from the third to the ninth hour, from, from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m., exactly paralleling, by the way, uh, the period of time that the lambs were being slain that very day in the temple, uh, on Passover, the last lamb being slain at 3 p.m., the exact time we see here that Yeshua died. In these final moments, we see here that Matthew records three final cries. Three cries in the dark. Uh, I'm going to put this on the overhead. In verse 46, we have Yeshua crying with a loud voice. In verse 50, we have another cry of Yeshua with a loud cry. And then in verse 54, a centurion exclaims in a loud cry. Three cries in the dark. 
And each one tells us something about the meaning of the cross and how it applies to the problems that we face today. Because the cross transforms everything. The cross addresses every major human problem. So, we'll put this on the overhead. The first cry solves our modern dilemma. Uh, the second, what I'm going to call a human dilemma. And the third, a personal dilemma. So let's start with the first and the most famous cry, Matthew 27, 46. About the ninth hour, he sure cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does this mean? Uh, well, first of all, by the way, it's quoted here in the, in the original Aramaic. Uh, why? To highlight that this is eyewitness testimony. Secondly, the Greek word used here for crying out really means to scream. Yeshua screamed. And the critics, not understanding what's happening here, they say that Yeshua broke here. Uh, he gave up on God. Uh, and, and he's saying, God, you failed me. Uh, and as we'll see, this is anything but. But because at least on the surface, this is such a troubling statement, uh, we can be sure of one thing. We can be sure this was not made up. You know, skeptics like to claim the Gospels were just made up stories uh, by Yeshua's followers. But if you were making up a story about the founder of your faith, the last thing you put in there is, is a statement like this. A statement that, on first blush, comes across as unheroic, uh, disheartening, hopeless, despairing. You would never put that in there. So the, so the only reason we have it here is because it really happened. This is accurate historical reportage from eyewitnesses. And Yeshua actually said these very words. Okay, so why did he say it? What does it mean? Here we have, in essence, the ultimate revelation of the meaning of the passion of the death of Yeshua. Uh, the word passion, in its original Latin, meant suffering. Uh, I know that's not how we use that word today. Today, we say the word passion it relates to love and romance and strong attraction. But originally, the word meant suffering. Uh, the Bible's revealing here that deep love always entails deep suffering. The passion of Yeshua the Messiah is that he underwent infinite suffering out of infinite love. And his cry here shows us both of these. First, it reveals the infinity of his suffering. Notice when he screams, he doesn't say, oh, my head, my head, uh, or oh, my hands, my hands, or my feet, my feet. He's not telling us here about his physical suffering, as bad as that was. He's been beaten, whipped, flogged, pierced with a crown of thorns, Crucified with iron nails driven through his hands and feet. He's been subject to all kinds of gruesome uh, physical suffering. And he never raised his voice. We read in Isaiah 53, verse 7, that uh, he was oppressed and afflicted. Because of the overhead, please. He was oppressed and afflicted, and he did not open his mouth. He was done like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep is silent before its shears. He did not open his mouth. So he's not here referring to his physical suffering. He also doesn't say, my friends, my friends, my betrayers, uh, my deserters, my deniers. 
he's not referring to his psychological suffering either. How, how alone he is, how abandoned he is. You know, indeed, up to this very moment, Yeshua has been unbelievably calm, poised, at ease. No matter what happens to him, no matter how much physical suffering, no matter how much psychological and emotional suffering, he remains completely in control. Never complains, always poised, never raises his voice. So here, when he starts to scream, this is something else. This is something way beyond physical suffering. This is something infinitely beyond torture. This is something that, that makes torture look, look like a mosquito bite. Uh, this is something else. What is it? It's not his physical or psychological suffering. It's his infinite spiritual suffering. Because when darkness came down on the land, that's emblematic of what's happening to Yeshua spiritually. When the Bible describes eternal lostness, when it describes hell, even more than the metaphor of fire, the Bible uses the metaphor, most of all, of outer darkness. Our hearts and our souls need the presence of God. Uh, like our bodies need food and water. Uh, like a flower needs the sun. If, if the sun would disappear, we'd all die. Uh, we could not survive a minute without the sun. In the same way when Yeshua says, my God, my God, not my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet, my friends, my friends, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, my soul is being plunged into absolute darkness. Absolute spiritual darkness. He's beginning to unravel. He's going down into utter spiritual destruction. At this point, our imaginations and our minds, they get overwhelmed. But, but keep this in mind. Neither heaven nor hell are in time. Rather, these are spiritual conditions. Of either being in the presence of God, or utterly being thrust away from the majesty and glory of God. So when you go to heaven or you go to hell, you don't experience time like we do here on earth. There's no such thing as, as three hours in heaven, or, or three days in heaven, or three years in heaven, nor are there three hours in hell. So on the cross, Yeshua wasn't saying, well, let's just hold on for, for two and a half more hours. No. He was experiencing on the cross a sense of being utterly and eternally lost. He would experience the infinite suffering of anyone who is eternally cast out. He's experiencing infinite to infinity of, of spiritual suffering on the cross. Let's go one step further. No one has ever done what he has done on the cross. No one has ever been, has ever been cast out of God's sight as he was saying, Father, I love you. I want you. I obey you. I perfectly and always do your will. No one has ever been cast out like that. Let's wait even further. If an acquaintance rejects you, that's bad. If a good friend rejects you, that's terrible. If a parent or a child rejects you, that's traumatic. But any psychologist will tell you there is nothing worse than a spouse rejecting you. 
You see, the level of the relationship determines the trauma of the rejection. If a friend rejects you, you get over it. If a spouse rejects you, many people never get over it. But this is something even more, something else on the cross. It's a whole new level. It's infinitely greater. Uh, no wife has ever been so one with her husband, or no husband has ever been so one with his wife, as Yeshua, the Son of God, has been with his Father for all eternity. And therefore, at the cross, when Yeshua took on the sin of the world, when he became sin, the Father who cannot look upon sin in his presence, turns his back on his Son, and cast out his Son, poured out his judgment upon our sin, upon his own Son. So whatever Yeshua experienced on the cross would have been infinitely greater than all the hells of everyone who ever deserved to go to hell all put together. That's why he screamed. That's why this is beyond anything that he himself had ever experienced before. He was experiencing infinite suffering. Why? Why was Yeshua experiencing this, this infinite suffering? That's the, the why question. Why was he being forsaken? This isn't just some, some random cry of dereliction. But where, rather, what Yeshua is doing here is he's quoting. He is quoting the scriptures. He is purposely quoting here verse 1 of Psalm 22. And of course, the Jewish thought that equates to quoting the entire psalm. And herein lies the answer to the why question. Psalm 22 opens like this. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Yeshua is quoting Psalm 22. And so Psalm 22 continues like this. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? I am a worm, not a human being. I'm scorned by everyone. Despised by the people. All who seek to all who see me mock me. They, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let him, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him if he delights in him. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax and has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divided my clothes, my garments, among them. And cast lots for my garments. Yeshua would have all of these verses in his mind when he quoted verse 1. Psalm 22, a psalm of David, is describing a public execution. Indeed, it's describing a crucifixion. But this was never fulfilled in the life of David. David was never publicly executed, let alone crucified. Rather, this is a messianic psalm fulfilled with the smallest detail in Yeshua. And it ends like this, with Psalm 22, verse, uh, beginning in verse 24. Future generations will be told this. He has despised the suffering of his afflicted one. 
But he's not. So he has not despised the suffering of his afflicted one. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down to him. Future generations will proclaim his salvation to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. So when on the cross, Yeshua cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying two things. Don't put this on the overhead as well. He's saying, number one, I'm suffering infinitely. And number two, though God is damning me, I'm sticking with the plan. Though God is damning me, I'm holding on to his word. Though God is condemning me and casting me out, I'm holding on. There's something here that he's doing and accomplishing on the cross. That's what he's affirming prophetically by quoting Psalm 22 to himself. And applying it to himself. What is he accomplishing? What is the passion of the Christ, uh, to quote Mel Gibson? <laughs> what is the suffering of Yeshua all about? Why does God the Father forsake him? It's all for us. It is for you and for you and for me. We are his passion in the full sense of that word. You are his passion. You are what he is dying for. We are what he's infinitely suffering for to take our sins upon himself and to suffer punishment on our behalf. The punishment that we deserve. He becomes sin on the cross. Like a young Kippur sacrifice on whom all the sins of the people are laid. And because God cannot look upon or abide sin in his presence, he turns his back on his son and forsakes him. Yeshua is suffering for you and I whom he loves. He's suffering for love. Because we are his passion. According to Psalm 22, Yeshua is saying, Yes, I'm being forsaken, but I'm doing this for a reason, for a purpose. Remember the famous place in Moby Dick where Kevin Ahab, uh, he's being dragged down to the, to the bottom of the deep by Moby Dick, and, and as he's being dragged down, he cries out, From the hell's heart I stab at thee. Well, very great, great prose, uh, but he wasn't really in hell. But there is someone who literally, really, truly was in hell's heart. Yeshua. And what does he say? He says, from hell's heart, I love you. That's what he's saying when he quotes Psalm 22. From hell's heart, I'm holding on. I'm loving you. You are his passion. And this cry on the cross proves that he's willing to undergo to this infinite suffering uh, in, in obedience to God the Father out of love for you and for me. There is no greater revelation of Yeshua's passion than these words. Now if that's what the cross means, passion, in the full biblical sense of that word. If the cross means that she was willing to endure infinite suffering out of infinite love for us, in order to atone for our sins, if we redeem us and rescue us, 
How should this transform your life? How should this transform the whole way you look at the world? Because rightly understood, the cross is the best answer to what I'm going to call the modern dilemma. Of the modern problem of our culture. What is that? The, the modern problem of our culture, of our society today, is that God has died in the minds of most of the Western cultural elites. Uh, the, the cultural leaders of our society. Uh, the elites in education, in the media, entertainment, in the arts, uh, in news reporting, in academia, in philosophy, in the social sciences, in psychology, in government, in business. And many of these cultural elites say it's no longer possible to believe in God uh, due to the suffering and the injustice in this world, especially in the last hundred years. The 20th century saw two world wars, uh, massive casualties, the Holocaust, uh, endless suffering and injustice. And in their minds, God died over that. They could no longer believe in Him. Or at least they could no longer believe in the traditional God of religion. Because the traditional God of religion says, do good and I'll reward you. Do good, be good, uh, be moral, and in return, I'll give you a good life. Disobey me, don't do good, be immoral, and I'll punish you. That's the God of religion. And that God died in the 20th century. Because people began to see that no matter how outwardly good they thought they were, terrible things could still happen to them. So for example, in the 20th century, of Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, just these three individuals alone, were responsible for the slaughter of more than 200 million people. Just these three guys. And in the face of that kind of suffering and injustice, and oppression, and evil, the traditional God became completely unreal. He became unreal for two reasons. Number one, he was aloof. Uh, he was uninvolved. He didn't do anything. And number two, the traditional God, who says, in essence, salvation by works, uh, blessing of goodness. Uh, if you're good, I'll bless you. I'll give you a good life. That concept of God was completely exploded by 20th century events. Because all kinds of relatively good and innocent people were completely trampled upon and, and slaughtered indiscriminately. And as a result, the traditional God died under the weight of the injustice and the evil of the 20th century in the minds of the cultural elites of, of the Western societies of America and Europe. But that created a dilemma. It created a dilemma, a huge dilemma. The famous 19th century philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, he saw all this coming on the horizon. He saw the Western European leaders all turning away from, from Christianity uh, and the Bible and the traditional view of God. But he was very disdainful and contemptuous of what he called the last man. Uh, here's what he says. We'll put this on the overhead, please. He says, the last man is a person who accepts the news that God is dead, but he goes on with life as if ideas like truth and falsehood right and wrong, justice and injustice, good and evil, as if they still make sense. Nietzsche says, 
If there is no God, then you have no right to tell anyone else uh, that, you sh that they should be doing this or they should not be doing that. So therefore, if you say, I don't think there's a God, I don't know if there's a God, but nonetheless, human life has value. Nonetheless, there's such a thing as injustice uh, that we must oppose. Nietzsche says, wake up. He pitied us. He pitied these hypocritical cultural elites, these social justice warriors, uh, who had given nothing but contempt for what he called the last man. Uh, and our centers of, of cultural power and influence and control uh, on the American East and West Coast today, uh, they're just filled with last men and last women. They say, I don't know if there's a God, but nonetheless, life has meaning and purpose. Uh, human life has value. There is such a thing as objective human rights. There is such a thing as justice and injustice. I'm going to work against injustice. Why? How do objective human rights, or justice or injustice, how do they exist without God? And of course these cultural elites have no answer, other than, because I say so. And Nietzsche says to them, you gutless wonders. You refuse to think through the logical implications of your beliefs. Nietzsche brilliantly says, the traditional God died because of the injustice, because of injustice. But when he died, he took any coherent concept of justice and injustice with him. Without God, there's no such thing as objective morality, or justice, or human rights. And that's the modern dilemma. But, but years before Nietzsche, the gospel took the absurdity and the injustice and the suffering and the evil of life very seriously. In fact, long before Nietzsche, through the cross, the gospel even considered the concept of the death of God because of the injustice of the world. Now, after World War II, uh, the German people were being confronted with the Holocaust. Uh, and they were being, everybody was pointing fingers at each other. Uh, and then a man came named uh, Gunther Rutenborn uh, wrote a fascinating play entitled The Sign of Jonah. And in this play, the German people started asking and confronting each other about the Holocaust. Did you do it? Did you know? Why did you do it? And in the play, just like in real life, People at first denied any knowledge or involvement, and then they said, it's not my fault. Uh, I was just following orders. It was the person above me who was responsible. And then the person above them said, no, 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 uh, it can't be my fault or my decision. It wasn't my fault, my decision, because it was the person above me. And then the next guy up the rung, likewise says, no, 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 it was the person above me. And in the play, at a certain point, it begins to dawn on everybody, wait a minute, it's the guy at the top. It's not our fault. It's God. It's his fault. The evil and the injustice in the world is God's fault. And at the end of this play, there's a trial. And they put God on trial. And they find him guilty. And this is the verdict. We'll put it on the overhead, please. This is the verdict from the play. We hereby sentence God to become a human being, a wanderer on the earth, 
deprived of his rights, homeless, hungry, thirsty. He himself shall die and lose his son and suffer the agonies of fatherhood. And when he at last dies, he himself shall be disgraced and ridiculed. Now wait a minute. Wait a minute. The people of the earth are looking at the injustice of life, and they say, God has to die? But note this. The God of the gospel, in his perfect righteousness, has done even more than the blasphemy of our cursing dares to demand. In other words, the philosophers were right, but in the wrong way. The injustice of the world means that God must die, but he comes in the gospel and does it voluntarily. As a theologian, Michael Green says this, we can set the overhead, he says, the God of the gospel is the only God who doesn't just write us a book on the problem of pain and, and send it down to us and says, Here, here's what it means. No. Rather, the God of the gospel is the only God who actually comes down and shares in our forsakenness. In the forsakenness that we feel in a universe gone wrong. We feel abandoned. We feel forsaken. But God comes down for our sake. And he gets his hands dirty, so to speak. And identifies with us. And experiences it himself. What the gospel gives us is this. A God who comes down in the person of Yeshua to bear the evil and the injustice of this world, even to die under it, so that if we repent and if we trust in Him and follow Him, we don't have to eternally pay the, pay the price and bear it ourselves. Yeshua did all of this in order to be able someday to end evil without having to end us. So Nietzsche is right. When in his famous work, Thus Spake Zarathustra, he says, we killed God. We really did. But what Nietzsche did not understand was that it was God himself who comes down and does it by the divine eternal plan. Father and Son, their passion is to save you and me. You know, there's a very famous place in Genesis 22 where God says to another father, he says, uh, Abraham, now I know you love me. For you did not withhold your son, your only son, the one whom you love from me. And now we can also say the same thing back to the Lord. God, now I know that you love me. For you did not withhold your son, your only son, the one whom you love from me. The cross gives us the only God who answers the modern dilemma of reconciling God to a world of injustice and suffering and evil. The modern world needs a God who is not aloof, but who actually has come down and participated in our pain and suffering, who's been the victim of injustice himself, who himself has been lynched, who himself has experienced our forsakenness. In Yeshua, we have a God who cares. 
and Yeshua, and only in Yeshua, we have a God who identifies with us, who walks with us, who suffers the injustice uh, and the evil and the oppression of this world, and who is willing to sacrifice and to die and to do all of this for us. And the gospel, Yeshua faith, Messianic faith, is the only faith that even claims such a thing. Without there being a God, there's no basis to object to injustice. Because otherwise it's just survival of the fittest. Uh, in an impersonal, materialistic, pitiless universe. But you also can't have a God who just sits up in heaven and says, be good and I'll bless you, but who never gets involved. You have to have the God of the gospel. The God of the cross. Yeshua the Messiah. He's the only solution to the modern dilemma. So that's the first cry. My God, my God, why are you forsaken me? Let's look at the second and third cries. The second cry is Matthew 27, 50. When Yeshua cried out again in a loud voice, he gives up his spirit. Now notice Matthew doesn't tell us exactly what he cried. It says that he cried out again in a loud voice. Way before he died. But John does tell us what he says. We have the answer in John. Uh, John 19, verse 30. The very last thing Yeshua said before he dies, it is finished. It is completed. It is accomplished. I did it. And Matthew hints, by the way, this very same meaning. Look at verse 51, Matthew 27, 51. It says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. And then Matthew goes on to describe these little mini-resurrections of the holy saints who come out of their tombs, uh, which foresees and foretells how through Yeshua's death and resurrection, we all who follow him will likewise one day be saved, may be raised. But the key reference I want to uh, camp on here is this reference uh, to the curtain of the temple being rent uh, from top to bottom. Now, if you went into the temple, the main thing you would see in the you were there in the days of the temple are barriers. Barriers everywhere. So, for example, if you're a Gentile, you can only go so far upon pain of death. If you're a Jew but you're a woman, you can go a little bit further, uh, but not all the way into God's presence. Women can only go so far and no further. Jewish males can get a little bit closer, but not into the temple proper. Uh, only, only the priests could go. And in the very holy of holiness, in the very presence of God, only the high priest could go, but only once a year on Yom Kippur, and only after elaborate rituals and washings and sacrifices. And separating this Holy of Holies from, 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 from the rest of the temple, from the holy place, was a shield veil, uh, the curtain. It was 60 feet high. It was, uh, it was almost soundproof. It was so thick. So what does this tell us? What is Matthew saying? What does the structure of the temple tell us? with all these barriers and restrictions, it tells us there's no access. The temple tells us no matter how hard you work, no matter how many sacrifices you bring, no matter how much penance you do, no matter how many how much atonement and how many offerings you make, no matter how many, how many washings and cleansings you have, never get in all the way. When Yeshua dies, that veil is supernaturally ripped. Not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. What's God saying? 
This is the gospel. What is the gospel? On the cross, although he does not deserve it, Yeshua is bare, he's barred from God's presence so that we can be brought in. Yeshua is rejected so that you can be welcomed. In other words, it is finished. All the sacrifices are finished. All the atonement is finished. This is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So even though Matthew does not give us the exact words Yeshua uttered at his death, we can pretty much know what he was saying. When Yeshua died on the cross, by the way, he said the exact opposite of what Buddha said when he died. According to Buddhism, the last thing Buddha said was, strive without ceasing. But Yeshua says, cease striving. I did all the striving for you. It's finished. These are two completely different approaches. The second cry gives us the answer to the great human dilemma. Not the modern cultural philosophical dilemma of injustice and suffering, but the second cry addresses this more human practical dilemma. Uh, that is this. Uh, we all want to do well. We all want to do right. But we also we want freedom. We want free will, which allows us for not doing well and not doing right. And we see this dilemma, by the way, uh, in the nightmare that the author, famous author Mark Twain used to have frequently. He had this recurring nightmare where he'd be laying on his back, on his bed, and on top of him would descend down upon him this 500-pound Bible, <laughs> weighing him down and crushing him to death beneath the weight of the Bible. Now, you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to figure out what this means. <laughs> what Mark Twain's subconscious was saying is this. On the one hand, you want to obey you. You want to obey the Lord. You want to do what's right. On the other hand, we bristle under all these rules and regulations. Uh, so we're constantly careening back and forth between the extremes of legalism and license. Between uh, committed to do good and obeying the law and feeling crushed beneath the burden of all these rules and regulations that we can never fully keep. And then rebelling against these restraints and, and running to license and lawlessness and, and a me-centered lifestyle. So many of us go back and forth, back and forth, and we're slaves uh, to these two extremes. <coughs> but the cross overcomes this dilemma. On the one hand, on the cross, we see the greatest act of, human, of obedience in human history. Here's Yeshua on the cross, quoting scripture to the very end. The secret of, of Yeshua's integrity and his character, at least from a human point of view, was that he was always true to the word of God. Every place he's tempted in the Bible, every place he's attacked, every place there's a decision he has to make, he's always thinking on and quoting Scripture. It's like you caught him and he believes Scripture. Always. That right here on the cross, he's in the heart of hell. Hell's heart. And what does he say? What does he do? You know, when you're in pain, when you're under incredible stress and duress, you don't act, you react. You don't compose yourself and calmly act, now what should I do now? No. Rather, your deepest reflexes automatically respond. And when Yeshua is in this living hell, when all he can do is cry out what's deepest in his heart, what do we see? We 
We see a heart just saturated with Scripture. So on the one hand, on the cross, we see this amazing example of obedience and character and integrity. But if I was to end this drosh right now, and say to you, okay, that's the message, now all you go home and memorize perfectly and obey the Bible, uh, you know, the next thing that's going to happen, you're going to start having Mark Twain's nightmares. <laughs> of a 500 pound Bible descending upon you and crushing you to death. Because you'll never live up to it perfectly. What Yeshua is saying here is that as an example on the cross, he shows us someone perfectly trusting the Word of God. But not as an example, but also as a substitute, he says it is finished. And what he's saying is this, obey because it's finished. Don't obey in order to finish it. Let me say that again, obey because it's finished, not in order to finish it. Let me give you a practical example here. Let's say you work too hard. Uh, you're a workaholic. Uh, you can't say no to anybody. You're overcommitted all the time. You have to please everybody. You're always sinking, and you ask yourself, why am I always sinking and falling down and feeling guilty, but despite all my wanting to do good? Well, maybe because subconsciously you are trying to finish what Yeshua has already finished. You're not just trying to obey the Lord out of, out of love for the Lord. You're not. You're sinking because you're trying to prove yourself. You're trying to make yourself worthy. You're trying to make yourself acceptable. Do you know the difference? It's absolutely critical to know the difference. Otherwise, you're going to have these nightmares of Bibles crushing you. <laughs> but what the cross gives us is the perfect roadmap. Yeshua says, yes, of course, obey. Obey the Lord, obey the word of God. You can't just live your life any way you want to, do your own thing. You must obey. If you're born again, the Spirit of God is living within you. It's giving you the desire to obey, the power to obey. But why? Why are you obeying? Not because you're trying to finish it, but because it is finished. Obey because it is finished. Obey in the joy and the gratitude to the Lord that it's finished. Obey out of love for Yeshua, that He has finished it on your behalf. To the cross, that only gives us the greatest corporate, cultural, modern letters answer, the answer to it, but also solves the ancient human dilemma. If you're in Yeshua, your sins are forgiven. So now there's no more condemnation. But, there's, but yes, there is still an accounting for sin. You know, if I have my kids in front of me and my neighbor's kids in front of me, uh, if my neighbor's kids disobey me or are rude to me, they don't bother me. But if my kids disobey me and are rude to me, that bothers me a lot more. If you become a Yeshua follower, in one sense your sins are now far less of a problem because they no longer condemn you. Yeshua paid for your sins on the cross. He says it's finished. You're now acceptable in God's sight. Yet in another sense, when you become a Yeshua follower, your sins become a far greater problem than they were before. Because this is the one who died for you. This is the one who from hell's heart died for you. And now in this sense, because of our intimacy with Yeshua, 
our sins are even a greater problem. Do you see this? Have you made this shift as to why you obey? Do you want to obey out of love and loyalty and gratitude because it's finished? Or are you trying to obey in order that so that it will be finished? These are two completely different mindsets and motivations. One will burn you out and grind you into the dust. The other will be for peace and shalom and God's rest. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And then lastly, finally, the last cry of the dark of the centurion. He says this in Matthew 27:54. Surely he was the Son of God. Now Matthew's showing us here in his last cry how hard it is to actually understand the gospel. Or more precisely, how easy it is to think you understand the gospel when you don't. It's all the witnesses on the cross are here, and they, at the cross, and they hear Yeshua cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then look at this, Matthew 27, 47. It says, When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's called for Elijah. Though perhaps when they heard him call out, My God, my God, in Aramaic, which is Eli, Eli, they thought he was saying, Eliyahu, Eliyahu, Elijah. Because it sounds the same. Uh, and of course, Elijah proceeds to come to the Messiah. So perhaps the crowd thought, well, that, that makes sense. He's, he's called for Elijah, the predecessor of the Messiah. Now, all these people at the cross, they're religious people. They know the Bible. And they're somewhat moved. They offer him something to drink. But ultimately, they don't get it. They completely miss what's going on. Then you've got these other two groups also at the cross. First group is the centurion and, and the Roman cohorts, the, the pagans, these violent men, these total outsiders. And the second group are the women, Yeshua's followers. So his women, they weren't allowed all the way in, into the inside of the temple. They're also a, kind of an outsider in, in Jewish society. So what Matthew is saying here is this. Here's the women and the pagans, the Gentiles, and they get it. And here's the religious people, the Pharisees, the Bible experts, and they don't get it. I want you to see how easy it is to think you understand the gospel <laughs> when you don't. To think you're trusting in Yeshua for your salvation when you're trusting in your good works. Wow. You could be in church or synagogue all your life and not get it. Like this first group of people here, who they completely right at the foot of the cross, right there, know their Bible, even be moved by Yeshua's death, but not understand it. Or you can be a complete outsider if you're here today, a complete outsider, consider yourself a non-believer, and yet the Spirit of God can reveal Yeshua to you. And you get it. And you embrace the Gospel. And you repent. And you give your life to Yeshua. You can do that today. That's what Matthew's telling us here. The outsiders often get it first because the outsider understands they have no merit. They understand that salvation is by grace alone, not by your pedigree or your goodness or your respectability. Do you understand it? Do you get it? One last thing, and we'll close. For those of you who are believers, how well do you know the Bible? How well do you use it? 
you notice, as I said, anytime Yeshua has a crisis or a problem, anytime anyone's coming after him, he relies on the Word of God. He quotes the Scripture. You now, if Yeshua, the perfect Son of God, relies on Scripture, do you think that you and I can handle life with just a little five-minute devotional each morning? If Yeshua felt he needed the Word of God, how much more so you and I? The Scriptures are the Word of God and the truth of God incarnate in narrative, incarnate in verse, incarnate in teachings. And if Yeshua knew that he had to saturate his heart with the Scriptures, how much more for you and for me? And on a, human, on a human level, this was the secret of his spiritual power. And it's likewise the secret of spiritual power for you and for me. So do you see how the cross transforms everything? How the cross paves the way through every dilemma? Surely he is the Son of God. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Father, as we prepare our hearts for Passover, beginning this coming Friday night, we remember the Last Supper. We remember Yeshua's last Passover of Savior. How he revealed himself as the bringer of the new covenant. The new covenant in his blood. How he is a Pesach lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so, Father, we acknowledge that Yeshua accomplished all this by laying down his life for us. By the crucifixion on Pesach day. By, by providing the blood atonement that we need to apply now to the doorposts of our heart so that we can escape the angel of death so that he can pass over us. Yeah. Lord Yeshua, we thank you for your great love for us, for your passion for us, for your suffering, for your infinite suffering upon the cross, whereby the Father abandoned you thereby proving your infinite love for us. We thank you, Lord, that you made Yeshua who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So Lord Yeshua, help us to live for you, to follow you, to lay our lives down for you daily, to obey you, but to do it all because we know it is finished. Because you have finished it. So we no longer have to strive to be accepted because we are accepted by you. Thank you that on the cross, you broke down every barrier between God and us. And you will fill us with your spirit. Yeshua, so now we can obey you and live for you out of love and joy and loyalty and gratitude and thanksgiving out of a new creation, a new covenant heart. And we thank you and we pray all of this in your name, Yeshua. Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.